We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm so happy to be joined by a friend. That would be Jennifer Cavani, editor of The College Fix. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to talk about what you guys are up to because it's so interesting. You have a political bias series, professor political bias series. You have a like campus wokeness database that has a lot of information people probably want to know and, and wonder sometimes. And here's a place where they can go find it. Uh, but Jen, why don't you start off just by telling us a little bit about uh, your your career? You know, how did you end up at the College Fix. You've been there for a long time, working day in and day out before other people were really paying attention to what was happening on campuses. Why did you end up covering this so closely? So I really truly believe that there's a battle for the heart, soul, and mind of America. And one of the most important battlegrounds is the college campus and to a certain extent K-12 as well. So it's really exciting to be able to be that canary in a coal mine and let folks know what is going on on these campuses. Events, you know, political bias, curriculum. These are all the kind of things that we track and report on. And then underscoring that, you know, we, we teach undergrads how to be news reporters as opposed to opinion journalists. And we hope to launch their careers so they can continue to tell America about what's going on in, in the nation's capital and elsewhere as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually always say whenever students come and are like, man, I want to do some writing. I want to you know, get involved in journalism. I always say write for the College Fix because Jen and her team there, they are fantastic editors. You whip young writers into shape like nobody else. It's just amazing to watch. Um, and, you know, it's not an easy job. So I, I'm, I'm so glad there are people like you, Jen, who are willing to help those kids. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're really trying to teach them that old school who, what, where, when, and why. Mm -hmm. And we encourage them to get both sides. Hey, quote the professor, quote the campus spokesperson. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we see as news isn't exactly perhaps what the campus newspaper sees at news or legacy media sees as news. So we're telling the stories that might otherwise get overlooked um, regarding higher education. Yeah. And let's talk about this Professor Political Bias series. And I also want to ask you about your database. So just give us a broad overview of both of those projects, and then we'll dive into some of the details. Sure. And and just from a, a, a general 30,000 foot standpoint, you know, a lot of people can dismiss the bias of higher education by saying, oh, you know, that's overblown. You know, there's there's really nothing to it. Um, there's all smoke and no fire. But you know what? At the college fix, we've got the receipts. So we, you know, we maintain the hard data and facts that we can prove, no, it's really going on. And two of those projects are our um, uh, professor political party affiliation, where we dispatch students to literally go look up if a professor is registered as a Republican or a Democrat um, in their in their county voter database. And then we, we tally it all up on a spreadsheet and then we report. And of course, no surprise, no shocker. It's usually 10 to 1, 15 to 1, 20 to 1, Democrat to Republican. <laughs> and then the other thing that we launched in September of 2021 uh, was a campus cancel culture database. And that's where we just essentially went and put plugged into a database every example of you know, memory holding, shutdowns, disinvitation, uh, you know, 
re revocations of, of honorary degrees, mascots being canceled, you know, Halloween costume controversies, all of that political correctness that wraps itself up in campus cancel culture, including the attempts and the successful cancellations. We tallied that all up in a searchable uh, database that we continue to update almost daily. Um, and we have, I think, currently uh, 1,500 or so entries dating back at least a decade. Mm. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> overwhelming. And, you know, I'm glad you're doing it, though, because centralizing that information is important for the historical record. And it's important just to understanding the breadth and the scope of the problem now. Uh, tell us about some of the results from your uh, professor political bias research. Um, you, you looked at places like UNC, Ohio State, even University of Nebraska at Omaha, Cornell. Um, what did you guys find when you dug into some of these numbers? Yeah, so essentially the, the data is not easy to obtain in the sense that we first have to find a university that's located in a state that publishes this stuff online. So some states require a, a date of birth in order to look it up. So unfortunately, we would do so many more of these if, if the data was more readily available. But we've stuck to states that you know we can, we can send students to do online and they're able to kind of dig in and, and crunch out the numbers. So our most recent our most recent college that we did was Cornell University, of course, the Ivy League University in New York. And it was incredibly slanted. Democrats outnumber Republican professors 98 to one in their humanities departments. Um, in fact, of all the professors we looked up, only one was identified as a Republican. Now, we, we choose not to publish that Republican professor's name because we just don't want them to become the pariah on campus, you know, but we have the information, we have the data, but we end up just what we do is we publish the tally by department. So for example, you know, no shocker here, the feminist gender and sexuality studies department, uh, zero Republicans, 12 Democrats. Keep in mind some of the names we couldn't find in the database. You know, we look, we use their cur curriculum vitae and their middle middle initials, et cetera, to make sure we have the right person. But at the end of the day, there's just some we can't determine. So these are all the ones we can. Um, uh, the one Republican we found was in the Department of Archaeology. The rest were <laughs> Democrats. Sociology, zero. Literature, zero. Government, zero. Philosophy, zero. And one of the arguments that we make is, you know, Departments such as political science, philosophy, sociology, they should have a, a decent mix so that the students can learn, you know, hear both sides of the issue and be well-rounded as opposed to getting their education in an echo chamber. So that's one of the reasons that we like to tout this, because it just goes to gives the receipts on the problem, the political bias slant in higher education um, is really not preparing them for a, a robust life when they you know, graduate and they have to face Republicans in the real world, you know, people who disagree with them and people who vote. So um, that's another reason that we, that we do this, just to illustrate the problem in higher ed and political bias. But yeah, we also did Ohio State. Democrat professors outnumber Republicans there by a ratio of seven to one. Not as bad. You know, it is Ohio. Uh, University of Nebraska Omaha was probably our best results. It's five to one. Uh, have, <laughs> that's you know, so crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting because it like, for example, we did the University of Georgia whole departments that we found at the University of Georgia literally had no Republican representation that we could find. And then at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, we found the ratio was 16 to one Democrats to Republicans. 
Oh my gosh. One thing I wanted to ask you is as somebody who's tracked this, um, the, the Trump years kind of did seem to, to change things just a little bit in the respect that it did become explicitly kind of about Donald Trump, about this Republican president um, in ways that maybe in the Obama years, uh, certainly during the Bush years were probably very prominent, but in the Obama years, uh, maybe things weren't so explicitly political so much as they were ideological. I don't know if that's right, but I wanted to pose that question to you, Jen. Is that something you noticed change um, in in a sense that now these sort of ratios become even more salient because there's borderline advocacy happening in different classes? Well, one important thing to to point out is that the the older professors, you know, the ones that are in their 60s and 70s and they're set to retire, they're they're more the classical liberals. They may disagree with what you say, but they respect your right to say it. Um, and they they allow debate. This these new younger professors that are coming in, and keep in mind, most colleges and universities now require a mandatory commitment to ver- diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so the the and the diversity uh, mantra and mandate, they're weeding out anybody who might be center right, libertarian, Republican, conservative, what have you. So these younger, newer professors that are gaining tenure now are more radical, more extreme than their previous, you know, they're they're retiring the old guard. So I think we're going to see this problem continue to grow and get worse, um, regardless of who's in the White House, but how this plays out in our national scene is, you know, young people, 18, 19 years old, they go to college, um, you know, maybe their parents took them to church on Sunday, but that was one hour a week to the extent of they heard anything about conservative or, you know, um, you know philosophical underpinnings of, of uh, center right principles. And then they get to these college campuses and it's a death by a thousand cuts. Their professors are, are full blown radical, far left. They only assign readings that, um, tell their side of the story. And slowly but surely, these students, most of them, fortunately, fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. You know, there's there's people fighting the good fight. Um, there's student groups on campus who try to you know, bring a different perspective. Oftentimes, these student groups have to fight tooth and nail for a venue, for a, a fair cut of the student fees. You know, sometimes these things are protested, shouted down, or they're disinvited. So you know, the, the battle to actually have a balanced you know, debate on campus is, is is continuing to rage, and I don't see any signs of it getting any better. <laughs> um, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. Tell us about the cancel culture database. Um, I, I'm curious. One question I had about this in particular was the threshold. You know, so you guys cover cover so many things every single week. Um, what was the threshold for inclusion in, in you know something that constitutes um, the sort of archivable cancel culture example? And and how do you even go about such an overwhelming task of centralizing all of that? Yeah, that's an excellent question because that was a debate heading into creating this database. Um, and we didn't include items of, for example, if a, a if students simply um, stood up and walked out of a speaker, as long as they didn't try to buy up all the tickets mm. and, you know, like a heckler's veto where they didn't let people get in because they, they crowded the theater. But if, if like, you know, a dozen students, you know, stand up and quietly file out 
that's not a protest we're going to include in cancel culture database because the, the event still took place and we respect everybody's right to protest. Similarly, if it, if they're just protesting something, you know, outside, that's allowed too. signs, even chance. The, the threshold is when they interrupt, shut down or shout down the other side's right to engage in a debate and hear other sides. So we, we wanted to make sure that we listed a cancellation that had an actual effect. The mascot was rescinded. The statue was put in storage. You know, the speaker could not continue their event. And that that would constitute an actual cancellation. But the the database does include attempted cancellations. And you can actually search the database if you only want to see successful cancellations. You can search with that metric. If you want to see just attempts, you can search by that metric or, you know, all. We also have it broken down by subject. You can search by subject as well, you know, whether that's mascots or a play that got canceled or a student event. But the idea was to, you know, create a database that tracks and quantifies the massive scope of cancel culture in higher education, you know, both its successes and, and the attempts, all of which can have a chilling effect on freedom of thought. As you kind of look back on a lot of these examples, again, like you've, you've been doing this uh, at the College Fix for a good chunk of time. You've seen a lot of this up close before a lot of people were paying as close attention as they were. You know, I think of people starting to tune into this around, what was it, 2017 when Berkeley was literally on fire <laughs> because people were upset. I think it was about Ann Coulter. Um, and maybe it was Milo, one of the two. Uh, but Berkeley was on fire and people, I remember CNN was had live footage from a college campus and it's like man you guys should have been doing this 10 years ago when people were getting you know booted out of campus by the future ceos and marketing directors and etc etc but as you sort of looked back and collected these examples put them together did you do you feel like you learned anything or saw any broader patterns that just became clearer um did it help you focus on any different things or just reflecting on all those examples did you did, did you have any big takeaways it's gotten progressively worse in the sense of it started off with microaggressions and cultural appropriation, right? So maybe people didn't like a, a Greek life event theme, um, or maybe people said, maybe you shouldn't be, you know, Pocahontas for, for Halloween or whatever. So it was just kind of like that little bit of public shaming. But what I've seen over the last decade is that the the targets and the demands got progressively you know, worse in terms of like, well, you don't have the right to say this on campus. You don't have the right to step foot. Your very presence on this campus, you know, is oppressive to me. It, you know, so it went from, I don't like your Halloween costume to you don't have the right to step foot on, on my campus. Um, so the, the demands from what I like to call the cry bullies you seem to get more and more extreme where they want to be wrapped in bubble wrap and, and have nothing that would even remotely offend them or, or, you know, cause them any, any sort of trouble or consternation. Um, you know, again, building names over the last years, especially after Charlottesville have been just completely, we whitewashed all the building names. Now it's like, I went from named after somebody who maybe gave to the university for decades, years um, to, you know, North hall, West hall. I mean, they're just completely, taking away tradition, history, culture of a region. Um, we've also seen honorary degrees revoked uh, frequently. We've seen student groups being shut down and shouted down. So I just feel like the intensity 
has continued to increase. We launched in September of 2021. And every week I add a new entry. Every single week I add a new entry. In fact, just to tell you like the recent ones, this last week, um, we had a story about uh, kids at the University of Illinois, Chicago, who put up every year the Young America's Foundation does this No More Che Day. With this, uh, trying to teach people about the truth of Che Guevara. Because you know, these young hip college students like to wear that like idyllic Che Guevara shirt. They have no idea he was like a mass murderer who had, you know, uh, didn't mind killing people without any proof and was really quite brutal dictator. So the kids are like handing out these, you know, flyers and informing people and the administrator basically told them to pack it up. And if they didn't, you know, they would be, they would face disciplinary action. This is a public campus and a public university. Um, we had a chemistry professor that was recently fired at New York University. The reason was because he, he was too tough. The students didn't like how they couldn't uh, skate by with an easy A or B. Um, you know, students are freaking out over the fact that a Republican Senator Ben Sass might be the new president <laughs> of the University of Florida. They they stormed the building where he was at, started banging on the doors, forced the event to be shut down 15 minutes early where he was answering student questions, but student government and other you know leaders of campus. Um, we had a university recently cancel a black playwright's play. I repeat, it was a black playwright and the play was about the civil rights movement but they were offended because it used the N-word. I don't know how you talk about, you know, you do a powerful play about the civil rights movement that's based in the 60s and not make it real. That's the playwright's point. And again, he's African-American, but they they actually shut down the play at Texas Wesleyan University um, because some students didn't like that it used the N-word. Um, and on and on and on and on it goes, really, truly. I mean, every week we're adding examples of successful cancellations and, and attempted ones to our database. And you know this idea that dates back to, if you recall, even prior to Berkeley being on fire, it was Mizzou. Remember at Mizzou where they mm. uh, the football players were able to, you know, they were going to protest, and then the, the actual president of Mizzou resigned as well as the, the the system's chancellor. And we also had that incredible video um, from Yale where they were freaking out over the fires, Greg. Uh, Lukianov, who was on there, and some other professor um, that were just trying to talk some sense into the kids because the, the his wife had said, hey, chill out on the Halloween costume stuff, guys. Oh my gosh, Yale was in an uproar over that. So it even dates back further than Berkeley. Yeah, uh, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and of course, you know, it goes back, William F. Buckley writing God and Man at Yale, and it's sort of always had, there's, there's always been that, that sort of left uh people and i think maybe this is why people took it for granted they they understood that academia was a, a sort of space owned by the left but they didn't realize that what was metastasizing because of that was getting to be so so very dangerous and uh, some of the stuff got so ridiculous jen i wanted to ask you know the university of chicago statement of free speech principles got uh, some real play it ended up getting signed by a, a handful a respectable handful um of academics and it seemed to me at least like for a time uh, some of the stuff quieted down a little bit because those old school civil libertarians understood um, that they needed to not back down and that they had to stop giving these inches and, and losing uh, the miles. Uh, but I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, I used to work for, for YAF and I still do just in a different capacity. And so I would see it every day just from the outside. I would say, ah, oh, is this stuff, you know, 
is it quieting down? Is there anything happening here? Um, but Jen, in your opinion, as somebody who, who does watch this every single day, is it getting any better at all? Has it gotten any better? Did it briefly get a little better? What, what does the movement look like on, look like on that front? Wow. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the situation on higher education is there is an awakening. You know, we've reached a point, I think, where even, yes, some traditional classical liberals are fighting back and trying to do what they can do. And alumni are joining the fight. So mm -hmm. we've seen a lot of alumni groups sprout up that love their alma maters and are like, this is ridiculous. Particularly MIT has one of the most powerful alumni groups out there right now. So you're seeing a pushback, absolutely. Um, there's an awareness, there's an understanding, and there are groups on campus that fight back and make sure that they offer alternative events, alternative narratives. And so the students don't feel alone. They can they can join with a group and have some camaraderie. Um, but the thing about, you have to keep in mind about the progressive left is they're in it for the long haul. You know, this isn't checkers, this is chess. And they will strategize, move their pieces, and they will play and play and play until it's checkmate. So again, the problem is right now, Every most campuses across the nation are requiring professors to pledge allegiance to diversity, equity, inclusion in for promotion, retention, um, and hiring. So, and that mandate means that they have to embed these kind of topics into their curriculum, even if it's a STEM topic, in order for them to get tenure. So this is how they're kind of forcing their curriculum into every little corner of campus. So maybe you don't, maybe it's not, I mean, look, we have never have a shortage of headlines at the college fix. Every <laughs> single day there's drama. But what I'm saying is the insidious part is the stuff we don't know about that's going on inside the classrooms day in and day out mm. uh, that is going to ultimately have an impact on how these young people view America and how they vote. Hmm. That's a really good point. That, and it is sort of scary to think about, especially in the sense that, and I know you guys have, I'm pretty sure you guys have, have pulled on this before, just what level of self-censorship is happening on campuses. Do you have a sense of uh, where that issue has gone recently? Because with self-censorship, what you, what you mean by that basically is that students are getting a terrible education because they're not encountering any disagreement or any debate and they're getting one side um, and, and coming out only having heard these meaningful, accurate and substantive arguments from one side. Yeah, absolutely. And we have done surveys in which uh, through College Pulse, College Pulse is like an online thing where the kids sign up and take surveys on their phone. And all the time we found that the conservative and center-right students said that they would self-censor, either bite their tongue and not you know, debate appear or write their essay in such a way that they would please their professor rather than risk getting a poor grade um, or becoming you know, a classroom pariah. And these type of results are you know, vindicated time and time again through, for example, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression had a massive survey recently, almost 50,000 kids and they did it through College Pulse. And again, their results found that students are self-censoring, center-right students are self-censoring um, at a much higher rate than their, than their um, left-leaning peers. Uh, just again, because of the pressure from both professors and peers 
on on you know on the narrative and and you know making sure that they're not called ad hominem attacks, poor grades. Um, some you know sometimes these kids are even doxed. You know, I, we've had stories where uh, some some of their peers will call their uh, work or publish their address online. So it could be it could be it's a risk when you when you take a stand um, as a center right Republican conservative and frankly even a liberal student on campus or libertarian excuse me. Um, recently, the Young Americans for Liberty had a free speech ball and somebody slashed it with a knife, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, they covered it up with a sticker so it didn't deflate, but I'm just goes to show you, I mean, you can't even have a, a, a five foot free speech ball on campus anymore without running into trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Are there any recent examples? I mean, you've given a lot of them, but is there anything that really stands out to you as maybe telling about where all of this is going it seems like maybe the the mental health frontier where students are being told basically that truth is relative and your truth you know is if if you feel as though you are um one thing then that's what you are if you feel as though you are too anxious to take a test then you are too anxious to take a test Um, so just even deeper than these issues of bias and getting into that sort of ideological conditioning that is is now so thoroughly postmodern and kind of post-truth um what what is the frontier sort of in the the question of the the bad education people are getting on campuses. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point, Emily, because you're right. So now what students are learning is that there is no truth, that everything is relative. And how's that playing out? Well, certainly it's playing out in the in the gender wars, if you will, where you know you the students are being forced, female athletes are being forced to play against biological men who, you know, have testosterone, their bones are larger, their lungs are larger. I mean, they're physically stronger. And yet these um, female athletes that work their butt off to get where they're at are being told, no, you have to pretend or uh, agree with mentally that that this person is a woman. Um, So that's a big problem because the pressure to accept relativism is is so great and so strong. I mean, they risk a lot of, um, from being a pariah, possibly even getting kicked off of their team if they try to you know say anything or do anything to fight this battle. I mean there's a lot of brave young women that are are fighting out and saying, "Hey, this isn't fair." And there's a lot of pushback and and we'll see where this topic goes. But what we're seeing is even atheist uh liberal professors are saying that are in the STEM fields are saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, time out." I mean, this goes against biology, this goes against evolution. Why are we denying literal scientific xx and xy chromosomes why do we have to play along this isn't this isn't true science this isn't fact but the we're in a, such a weird time right now in america where i mean matt walsh recently called it mass psychosis which i am you know, obviously that's kind of a broad generalized term but the, the the sense is is when you're talking to somebody that says um you know men can birth babies and men can <laughs> have menstruation and men can uh, breastfeed and everything. It's like, what was the feminist movement all about then when we're ceding all of our, all of our rights, all of our you know special privileges as women to men. I mean, it's, and there's a lot of feminists trying to fight this battle too. Um, but boy, oh boy, it went from zero to 60 on college campuses where back in 2015, maybe they were asking you your preferred gender pronoun on a college application to now the first thing you are introduced to when you walk into college or in freshman orientation is 
to literally announce your preferred gender pronouns and put them on your name tag. And professors are being told to put this type of accommodations on their syllabus. And um, it's everywhere. It's, it's ubiquitous on campus now. And it's really hard for students to sort of grasp what's going on here. And I think it does affect that larger issue of, well, maybe they're right. Maybe, you know, everything is relative. And uh, those truths that we understand that all men are created equal that are spelled out in the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, those are at risk ultimately, um, and those are those are what are being uh, attacked right now by by the progressive left. There's definitely a heightened consciousness around uh, the ills of academia and sort of higher education at this point. It's on the right, but I think it's probably also just crept into the median parents, um, you know, media consumption. They, they sort of probably understand that certain things have accelerated and that there may be other options. Student debt is a great example. It's been sort of front and center in the media conversation. Um, and it, it was a reminder to anybody considering enrolling in college what might be facing them um, with, you know, underemployment and high debt going forward. There's been a renewed focus in, among Republicans on trade schools. Have you noticed that any of this is is scaring college campuses or, or college administrators into doing a better job? Have you do you think this mo movement uh, is actually getting traction? Do you think they're, they're actually like enrollment might actually decline in some of these places and students might uh, be finding themselves in better pipelines into adulthood? What's your sense of how that's actually shaking out? So I wish I mean, we've been talking about the higher ed bubble and whether it's bursting or gonna burst for, for about a decade now. <laughs> and I liken it to a, a balloon that's slowly deflating. You know, it's, 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 it's not popped and it's not going to burst, but it is slowly deflating. Now, we'll never, higher education has the sports industrial complex. Okay, this is America. We love our football. We love our baseball. We love our college sports. And so higher ed is never going to go away completely. And it serves an important role in many ways. Um, and there's a lot of, we need it. Um, but the narrative that you're going to be a failure in life if you don't go to a four-year college right out of high school, I think, is what is being debunked in a powerful way. And more students and parents are considering, you know, maybe to start in the military for four years or just, you know, it's okay to start at the JC and kind of figure things out or seek a trade school or seek a vocation. I think that the, the narrative that you have to go to college in order to be successful is being disproven. And the, another thing that helped that was the COVID online stuff, right? Where all the students had to go online. They're like, what am I paying all this money for? This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it kind of woke them up to different ways of getting their degrees. A lot of colleges have jumped on the, you know, you can get a very good degree through online education and more students are open to that pathway now. And then, because that's a lot of the ways in which a university will get its hooks into students. A lot of universities require them to live on campus the first two years. So they may even get there with a scholarship, but they're still paying 25, 30 grand in, you know, for the dorm and the fees and the meal plan and this and that. So they, they still get them either way. So I think now students are saying, you know what, maybe I'll save that 60 grand, do the online thing and avoid all that drama. So yes, it's, it's slowly deflating, not as fast as I'd like, but I feel like more people understand there's different pathways. 
whether administrators are concerned, they certainly don't act like they are. I mean, they're going full steam ahead with their <laughs> plans. Um, I wish they acted like they were a little bit more concerned. Unfortunately, they don't very often. Um, and how, why, why should they? The, the, the Biden student loan payoff is just going to embolden them to raise tuition. I mean, the, it's the biggest racket ever because there's no, the return on investment is, is so poor for a lot of majors. And, but yet students and parents are still paying hand over foot or they're getting, it's, it's easier to get a college loan sometimes than go down to the corner store and buy a gallon of milk. Right. And these kids are getting into massive, massive debt and the colleges are just ranking it in. Um, so we need student tuition reform uh, and not just you know writing off debts. And a lot of people are concerned that Biden's latest you know, uh, decision to just unilaterally write off debt is actually going to inflate tuition even more. Mm. Mm. That is such a depressing thought, Jen. <laughs> I know. I know. It really, it, I mean, just look. I, okay. Like I said, I've been at the college fix for 10 years. And every single day, we're going to have an article that might depress you. (laughs) But the point is, is like, if you not, it's not good to ignore this problem. It's not good to put your head in the sand and and just go on with life. We've got to fight these battles. We've got to, awareness is key. I think we have reached a certain level of awareness in this country. And now we've got to encourage our young people as parents, watchdogs, activists, at least at a minimum to arm them with the facts and data and logic through proactive parenting so that if they do go to college, they don't fall hook, line and sinker for this claptrap. But Mm. underscoring that, telling your kids, you know what, it's okay to just maybe start at the junior college, you know, work at a store, you take some electives, find your aptitudes and maybe save you 60 grand in the process, then transfer to the four year and bang out your major. So I feel like you know, it's a long battle. Uh, it's a chess game. We got to move our pawns and our and our players just like the left will um, and keep fighting this battle because it's very important. And again, it, it plays into how people vote and how people vote plays into how, what affects us. Elections have consequences. I think we've seen that under Biden. Hmm. Jennifer Cabani is the editor of The College Fix. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find more information? Where where can they go uh, look at the databases and look at the results here? Yeah, so thecollegefixfix.com. And we have a link to our Campus Cancel Talk Culture database right at the upper right-hand corner of our website. We also are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you want to sign up for our newsletter, I, I send it out just twice a week. I love saying that because I know people are always nervous to sign up for newsletters. You can get eight a day. I just do it twice a week because I know how it feels. And we just have something curate some of our best articles. That way you can keep uh, track of us. And um, also we obviously have YouTube and all all those kind of things. Rumble. We're everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. Just make sure to go check them out because it's so important as Jen was just saying to stay abreast of these topics because uh, they are the patterns that will affect us for years to come. Uh, Jen, thank you again. Truly a pleasure to catch up and, and hear your insights on all of this. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. We've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. 